The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 9th of June. Associate Professor John Litt discusses some basic influenza epidemiology, the importance of vaccination rates and the healthcare workers' influenza vaccination. He will explain what happened in 2021 and what to expect in 2022, and what's new in cell culture and high-dose influenza vaccines. These are my conflicts of interest. I'm not going to karaoke the slide, but I largely talked for most of the vaccine manufacturers, and what I'm recommending is actually what's in the immunisation handbook, so we're not deviating from that. I'm going to give a quick snapshot of epidemiology. Most of you would be familiar with that with flu. I'm going to spend a bit of time on what happened in 2021 and what's going to be coming, or what's already actually happening here in 2022. And I'll talk also about the two new flu vaccines that are available. There's a cell culture vaccine produced by Securus, which, is, which has an advantage because it actually better matches to the, what the WHO recommends, and I'll I have a few slides on that. I'll also talk about Fluzone, which is the high-dose flu vaccine. It's got an increased amount of the flu virus antigens in it uh, to get better protection. And both those, the flu, the high-dose one is recommended in older people, and the cell culture vaccine is for adults um, and, and children. I'll just give you kind of the rationale about why we have high vaccination rates. We take it as a mantra, but it's good to have the underlying logic. I'll just skirt on to healthcare vaccinations as well, but I'll share with you some of the misperceptions around why people might be reluctant, given that we're actually going to have flu vaccines available pretty well in every state now for, uh, for anyone over the age of six months. There are going to be a group of people that don't normally get the flu vaccine and it's useful to know what some of the barriers are and to have in your mind what some of the things that might help to counter that. So let's have a look. 2021, last year was a non-event compared to flu. The kind of best parameter of, of what's been a bad season was 2017. Most of you remember that. You would have given your flu vaccines early and a lot of people who got vaccinated would have come down with influenza in August or so. And so that's where we had significant drift of the vaccine and because we get only three or four months protection from the influenza vaccine and after that it declines by about 8% per month that if you vaccinate somebody very early in the year and we have the main amount of flu circulating around August and September, they're already starting to wane and get less protection. 
but this is ILI. This is what's measured by aspirin. So this is not necessarily flu, but respiratory viruses are on the rise, and that's probably because we've got the winter weather coming here, and they're following the trajectory of 2017, which is a fairly moderate year. If we now actually look for PCR and have a look at the ones that are actually lab-confirmed, it's very clear that there is a large rise in influenza. Now, I know Alan Cheng was recently reported to say we're doing a lot more testing, but we actually recognise that a lot of the testing is going on in respiratory clinics or drive-through clinics, and a large number of GPs are not necessarily seeing people with ILIs uh, because of the risk of COVID. And so I think testing may be accounting for some of it, but there's no, there's no doubt that there actually is a rise in the number of cases of influenza. Now, if we look at the hospitalisations, reassuringly at the moment, they're still below what they were in 2017 and 2019, but the yellow line is the five-year average. And just bearing in mind what my colleague earlier said, the hospitals have been under strain for two years. And just because their ICUs aren't full doesn't mean that they're not overloaded and overworked. And they've been dealing with a lot of respiratory illness, particularly COVID, for a very long time. And that has a flow-on effect to elective surgery and other factors. And so the hospital system does not need a large number of cases of influenza to compound all the things that are going on with Omicron. And as your previous speaker has said, Omicron's here for the winter. And so we have a real problem in Australia that we're going to have likely high levels of flu and high levels of actually corona circulating. And that will impact on our hospital system. So we're not immune. You guys started earlier in Queensland. We're sort of catching up in South Australia, but influenza is in every state. And if we actually have a look at the population who's getting it, it is sort of the usual culprits. There are younger people, but we're also seeing quite a lot in the kind of the teenage and other era. Now, you could almost sort of say like the, it's almost like the get out of jail syndrome. When everyone's been told they don't have to wear masks and they can actually do things, people are actually all of those useful public health messages that they learned over COVID have now been abandoned and the people are very keen to get together and that's a perfect breeding ground for influenza as well as COVID. We're seeing both H3 and H1 circulating in that and Ian Barr from the WHO tells me they are well matched to what's actually in the vaccine but we will have no data on the vaccine effectiveness for three or four months until we actually have enough cases and enough of the subtypes looked at to actually determine how well does the vaccine match against that. We'll have much better indication from the reports we get from clinicians about people who are vaccinated and where they don't get influenza. So can we do better? Uh, this is Sheena Sullivan's paper of a couple of years ago looking at the effectiveness of flu vaccine. And if you look at the average, it's about 50%. And so it kind of is... A factor is that we like to have vaccines that are really effective. To have something which is only 50% effective is somewhat disappointing, and that's even more so in older populations. But I think the corollary, if you actually had nobody having the flu vaccine, if you think you've got a ramping problem now, you will double it by actually not having people covered. So we would love to see more effective vaccines, and uh, several of the companies have actually worked on that to do that. So how can we improve flu vaccine effectiveness? Well, we can look at patient factors. So when you're immunocompromised, so being over the age of 50, your T cells have started to significantly decline and your risk of infection goes up. You can have various medications that can sort of compound that. And all of those factors increase your likelihood of getting the disease. <clears throat> flu is very uh, adept at changing its spots. And there's a lot of antigenic drift because it's an unstable virus. And so what we start with in terms of the match strains may well be different 
by the end of the season. And that's what we saw in 2017, and you saw that reflected in the curves that I showed you. The third factor where we may have some degree of control is that we make, until recently, all of the influenza vaccines in embryated chick embryos. Now, that's worked really well and we can ramp it up, but we've seen with the H5 and the H7 viruses in China, when you get highly pathogenic influenza in chickens, that the egg embryo is somewhat vulnerable and there are other disadvantages of using that. So one company has actually made a, a cell culture in a mammalian cell. It's from the maiden Darby kidney cell, which was uh, harvested from a cocker spaniel in the 1950s. So it's not a dog flu vaccine. It's actually a cell line that's been purified, but it has a number of advantages. And the advantages are that it actually deals with egg adaptation because when you grow a flu virus in a mammalian cell, then the virus that you grow is going to much better match what the WHO says. When you grow it in an egg, the virus has to adapt to grow in that environment and that alters it. And so it's sort of like shooting with a gun sight. If your gun sights are not calibrated, then you're actually going to be off the mark in a way. And that's what happens when you do it in egg culture. You start off with what you think is going to be needed and then you actually get some difference. And so that's particularly problematic for H3. H3 is the most pathogenic of the flu viruses. When we have an H3 season, we're going to see a lot more complications from influenza uh, in terms of people being admitted to hospital and people dying. And so if we can actually address that and the cell culture, virus, cell culture vaccine does that. So that's saying it in another way. It is different from the other one. Um, in terms of its side effect profile, I'll show you a slide on that. And in terms of its effectiveness, um, that's the next slide. So let's have a look. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking to you today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people, but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old and you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation, and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery, and this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital, and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. So this is US data, and these are three influenza seasons. There's 2017-18, which was largely an H3 season. 
So you'd think it would be, it'd be more effective in that year. 2018-19 in the US was started off being mainly H1, had a little bit of H3 at the end of the season, and there was about equal amounts of H3 and H1 circulating in 2019-20. So if you have a look, and this is the relative vaccine, so this is the additional benefit you get over the, um, the vaccine that's actually made in eggs. And you can see that when there was a good, when there was a lot of H3 circulating, you got quite a sizable effect of 15 or 20% improvement. From a public health point of view, that is very meaningful. That will have an impact. That may be a bit of a harder sell for individual patients, but across the board, it's going to be beneficial. In the seasons when there was a mainly H1 season, you can actually see that the impact is about a 10% absolute improvement in terms of vaccine effectiveness. So the cell culture vaccine is not on the NIP. It's going to cost people about $40 dispensed. You can give it over to anybody over the age of nine, and largely it's not for older people because we've actually got separate recommendations for that. In terms of the side effect profile, it's very similar to the egg-based one. Where it's different is you actually have a slightly higher rate of local pain. I'll just summarise that slide. Largely, local pain is more common. The systemic side effects like malaise, headache and fatigue are very similar, about 10 to 15% of the population. So people might get a bit more local reaction, but otherwise it's going to be very similar to any other flu vaccine they've had. The high-dose vaccine is a different formulation. So that's actually got four times the dose of the antigen of each of the viruses, so each of the H1, H3 strains and each of the B strains. And that is to try and improve the um, immunogenicity of the virus. So this is a study actually looking at that with all of the studies using the high-dose vaccine, and the comparator group is the standard-dose vaccine. And so if you actually have a look here, you can see that there is an impact on influenza. You can see that there's an impact on hospitalizations of around 25%, and you can see that the mortality similarly is also reduced. So there is a benefit from that high-dose vaccine uh, in, in, in the population. This vaccine is not on the NIP, and I gather Sanofi is actually not planning to, to list it as yet. And it is actually recommended, you can see by ATAGI, that there is no preference in terms of older people between the two vaccines that have been identified. The one that's on the NIP is Fluab, which is the enhanced adjuvant vaccine, and that's available in your fridge, and that's at no cost to the patient. The other vaccine, the high-dose vaccine, you're actually going to have to pay for, and that's about $70 dispensed. Looking at the profile of that, you can see that the local side effects are slightly higher. This is in a grade review, which is a very robust look at all of the studies and the degree of confidence to say what's likely to happen. And it would confirm really what you would see, just like we get with, um, with Zostavax, when you increase the antigen, you're going to have more local reactions, and that was confirmed. You can also see that they've actually measured the benefit of around additional 24% improvement of this vaccine versus the standard dose. So just summarising it all, everybody should get one. All the vaccines should go on the register. That was a real issue with herpes zoster where half the people who actually got a zoster vaccine weren't entered on the register. People can have a flu vaccine with any of the COVID vaccines on the same day in a separate arm. There's no problem with that. And as I said, Atagi sees no difference between uh, either recommending either flu out or flu zone in the older populations. Flu zone can be given over the age of 60, but um, people will be having to pay for that. And you can see the bottom line there in terms of the level of protection. We get about three or four months of the recommended protection and then it starts to decline about 8% per month after that. And so, but we know that flu is here, so it is worthwhile getting on with it. 
And this might be the reason, I don't know, I was on Natalia a long time ago, but this might be the reason why they've not seen to say, give any specific preference to one vaccine over the other. There are no head-to-head -head comparisons between the high-dose flu vaccine and the adjuvanted flu vaccine in the older population. But when you actually assemble all the studies, and this was done in a systematic review, the net result is that there was a benefit of about 3% for the high-dose vaccine, but you can see that the confidence intervals actually straddle one. So statistically, there is no difference between the two. So that's the state of play at the moment, and the uh, flu zone is actually not on the NIP. So why do we need to get it high levels, not just because people tell us to, but because we actually provide protection to the population. So just like we've learned with the COVID vaccines, we find that we have the maximum benefit of not preventing the illness, but actually reducing the risk of hospitalisation and death. And because repeat vaccine gives you ongoing protection and also means that you give protection to your hospital emergency departments and to the uh, hospitalisation and beds and things, it's really important that we actually do it uh, on a regular basis. It's one of the most cost-effective things we can do, so it actually is good value for money. And so what are we doing? Uh, this changes daily. I've changed this slide about seven times. Um, I would say that if you want to check what your state is doing, have a look at the Queensland Health site. The SA Health site recommendations are getting tweaked every day, and I know GPs have been annoyed because they've had very little notice. But in a nutshell, everybody over the age of six months is now eligible for a free flu vaccine. The NIP vaccines you do under the normal mechanism, the people who are not on the NIP, they get the, the flu and they will have that. The GP will be reimbursed for providing that up to about 20, 22 to $25 per person. The kind of groups and where that can be done, largely GPs and pharmacists, but the groups and how they're going to be done do vary by state. So check your own state for that. And largely, this is looking at the month of June. And the point is we actually want to get high levels of vaccination because it's really on the rise to kind of curb the effect of winter. Um, don't look at the table too much. Look at the bottom line. Last year, at the same period when we had virtually no flu, a quarter of the population actually, no, 30, a third of the population actually had the flu vaccine. Um, this year at the moment, at the same point, we've only got 25%, and that's probably one of the things that drove the Commonwealth to the side. Um, this has up, been updated. This is the slide courtesy of Ian Barr. It's now something like about 30,000 compared to the 4,000. And so just to sort of in the mindset, have a look at the deaths we've had. This is at the end of April, 7,000 from, from COVID. If you want an interesting contrast, uh, the USA have had 1 million deaths from COVID. It's a, there's a very interesting article in the New York Times where it actually contrasts, contrasts our public health um, interventions compared to what happened in the US, and it's a, it's a sober reading. So we need to get it. GPs are pretty good. By and large, about two-thirds of you had the flu vaccine, and we protect others. It's recommended. What about presenteeism? I'll show you some data from Stephen Lamper that's looked at hospitals and what doctors do and go to work when they're sick. And we, we do that for various reasons because the clinic is busy, it would be disruptive if we couldn't go in and it would put a load on our, on our colleagues. Um, and there are also ethical reasons in terms of duty of care to people to actually make sure that we get it. So this is two things just to highlight both nosocomial infection, the fact that healthcare workers can spread flu, and the fact about presenteeism. So if you look at the graph on the left here, if you have one patient in the ward who's actually got influenza, then about six people are going to be infected by that person. If you've got a healthcare worker and a patient, the combination of that actually means about 35 people are going to be spread. And so we've seen that in nursing care, we've seen that in nursing homes and residential care, and it's just as apparent in hospital. 
to measure that and see why that happened, Stephen Lambert looked over about the last eight years and looked at six certificates and looked at lab confirmed. So there was no doubt these people had influenza. And something like one in seven healthcare workers were going to work with, with influenza and maybe or maybe not being aware of that, but they weren't taking time off work. And it's even more common when you look to the healthcare workers. And so it's the issue. It's very difficult. They often don't have the staff to replace that, but that's having an impact on terms of people getting sick. I know that in, in Melbourne, in the Melbourne Hospital there, where they were link, dealing with people with COVID, they had almost equal numbers of staff with COVID as the people that were being treated. And they, uh, there was a very steep learning curve of how to actually prevent nosocomial infection. Just to quickly draw a look at the second and the fourth column. And if you actually have a look, the negative is what people would have without a GP recommendation and look at the impact even when, the even when their negative reaction remains of you having a recommendation. That in, in, in all circumstances, the vaccination levels are above 50%. The one where it's lowest is where they feel it's not needed. So fluorona, we don't know because most of the data to date, it hasn't been fortunately circulating at the same time as COVID. Uh, Australia is going to be a case study. We still have and continue Omicron. You've heard about that from the previous speaker. We are going to have flu this year. And so we've got a really perfect potential storm of actually having people not just with you know, flu or corona, um, COVID admitted, people who actually get flu rona, they get the both of them. And just to show you the impact of that, this is a UK study that looked at about 7,000 people. And they looked at people who'd had both influenza and COVID at the same time, they were four times more likely to be mechanically ventilated and their chance of dying was doubled. And so you really don't want to do that. You can't, if you're going to get one or the other, it's bad enough. If you get two of them, you're going to be in trouble. There is some evidence, um, but this is actually only one study at the moment where if you actually had a flu vaccine, you might have a less severe course of COVID. We're not quite sure of the mechanism of that. More data is actually needed, but another reason to think about it. But clearly, if people are coming in now, they need to have their third dose. A third of the population have not had that, that sort of booster dose, which is needed to protect them against Omicron, and they can have the flu vaccine in the other arm. Thank you very much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.